Hi, my name is Price Connors, and I am actually the director of history and tours here at the Price Tower in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And I am an architect and designer, and love Frank Lloyd Wright and have for many years. <laughs> I'm Josh Cooperman. This is Convo by Design, and uh, this is a very special episode because I got to go visit a place that was on my bucket list. It's amazing, and I'm going to venture a guess that you've never been there. When I first moved to Tulsa, I, I mentioned in the show that something I was most excited about was seeing new things that many, if not most, have never seen. There was something on my list from day one, and I finally had the chance to go and do this, to visit the Price Tower. For those not familiar, the Price Tower is an absolutely exquisite creation of Frank Lloyd Wright. It is constructed of concrete in a very unique shape, four quadrants, based on the the geometry of a 30-60-90 double parallelogram. It was based on the idea for a Manhattan cluster of buildings designed and then scrapped in 1929 due to the Great Depression. The Price Tower was designed and built for Harold C. Price to serve as the headquarters for his oil and gas pipeline company. The building was designed to be mixed use and was open to the public in February 1956. Materials used. The building is primarily made of concrete, with heavy use of wood, copper, and other materials regularly found in Wright's work. Heavy use of copper, stamped concrete in Cherokee red, can be found alongside the neutral wood and use of greens and golds. The wallpaper was as well as the fabrics designed for Schumacher as part of his Taliesin line. It can be found as well as his unique style of lighting and a significant amount of art all present. There are unique pieces present that were designed and then sent to local companies to create. They include aluminum cast, so cast aluminum chairs by the Blue Stem Foundry. Mixed use. What makes this building unlike any other example of Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture? It's that this is a skyscraper. To be concise, it was his definition of a skyscraper. And others as the only one he ever built. Frank Lloyd Wright was interested in how people lived. His definition for a skyscraper was not dissimilar to how streets showcase horizontally in society. This was made to be vertical and an accomplishment with similar purpose. A neighborhood, but instead of going horizontally, a neighborhood going vertically. As such, this was his example of a life-work environment and incorporated many floors to serve as separate zones for separate purposes. Because the building is supported by the four elevator towers and not the floors themselves, Wright was able to imagine the space almost like a tree with the elevator columns as trunks, floors as branches, and copper installation as leaves. My experience. This visit was absolutely amazing for me. I received an incredible tour by a gentleman named Price Connors, and we later sat down with Price and I for an interview, which you're going to hear in this episode. If you check out the show notes, you'll find links to some Instagram reels showcasing video uh, from my visit. Of note, check out how Frank Lloyd Wright wanted you to live in the spaces he creates. Check out the amazing views and try to imagine, as I did, that you were in a treehouse because that's how it feels. The day I visited, I learned that the building had been sold to Copper Tree Incorporated for the debt and a $10 million promise to refurbish the building. That's pretty cool. I had never heard of Copper Tree and thought, what a unique name for a company interested in refurbishing this particular building. Did a little digging and learned that Copper Tree is a relatively new company, an investment company created 
for the purpose of acquiring and preserving iconic buildings like the Price Tower. I sat down with Price Connors, as I mentioned, who is an absolute wealth of knowledge and who both gave me a guided tour of the Price Tower and sat down with me for an, extent, uh, an extensive interview about this truly unique and amazing project. I hope you enjoy hearing from Connors as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. For images and video shorts from my time at the Price Tower, visit us on Instagram at Convo by Design with an X. You're going to hear from Price Connors right after this. I am incredibly proud of Convo by Design in year 10, and I'm equally proud of my partnership with Thermosol. They've been presenting partners of Convo by Design for three years now, and there is a certain amount of pride that comes with saying that the show is presented by the company that is the best in the world at what they do. Thermosol engineers the most exceptional smart shower products and steam shower systems worldwide for a few reasons. They were the first company to design patent the technology here in the U.S. dating back to 1958. Thermosol, a U.S. brand, a U.S. manufacturer in Round Rock, Texas, employs an engineering team that designs, tests, and continuously refines the product. Their quality control team tests every single steam generator before it departs the factory. Who else does that? Nobody. I have had the pleasure of working with some world-class designers and architects who tell me and you probably know this, that the idea of luxury has changed and continues to change, especially when clients want a spa-like bathroom. Steam is mandatory. Or it's just not considered a, a, a luxury space. And if you want to add steam, you have one true option. It's Thermosol. And now, Thermosol, the industry leader in steam, bath equipment, and technology since 1958, is enhancing their already stellar family of products with new indoor and outdoor luxury saunas. Available in three design configurations, each sauna is handcrafted from clear western red cedar or Nordic spruce, inspired by the brilliance of northern European sauna technology and design. A luxury bathroom isn't luxury without steam. If you want luxury, you have one option. It's Thermosol. Check them out at thermosol.com and at thermosol on the socials. The first thing I want to say is thank you. Um, we just finished an absolutely incredible tour of, of this, this facility, this structure, this, this entity. Uh, tell me something. As an architect, as a lover of great design, isn't it interesting that this building is sitting in Bartlesville, Oklahoma? Well, you know, there's a very interesting story about that. Yes, it is quite unusual. But we have Bruce Goff to thank for that. Bruce Goff, who was the head of the architectural department at the University of Oklahoma for many years, was a great fan of Frank Lloyd Wright since he was a young teenager. And both Mr. Price's sons attended the University of Oklahoma. And Mr. Price asked his son Joe, would you ask Mr. Goff to design a building for me? And Mr. Goff said, I think you should call the finest architect in America, Frank Lloyd Wright. And that's the end of the story. You know what happened next. So it was very unusual because the Middle West, the Midwest has a very unique architectural history. They're very conservative, but yet, there's people who allowed really wild architecture to happen. This building was a shocker when it opened in 1955. But Mr. Price was fascinated by architecture, as were his two sons. Mr. Price had had their original family home done by Cliff May, the very famous California architect. And he continued the whole lines. And a very funny story about this is when he went to Spring Garden, Taliesin East, to talk to Mr. Wright, he looked at the building and he said, what's so great about this building? This was 1952. Cliff May did this for me. And his son said, look at the date on Taliesin. And at that point, Mr. Wright Mr. Price realized Mr. Wright was the right one, but he was very accepting of it all. And Bruce Goff was a great part in that. Bruce Goff also did a great deal of work in the city of Bartlesville. And his architecture is way out there. Now, one of the interesting things that I've read is we have a wonderful community center that was designed by one of the 
owe apprentices to Frank Lloyd Wright, actually his first one, William Wesley Peters. And I've read the hot debates that were going on. They wanted it to be like a church with a steeple, a typical brick construction. And Phillips Petroleum stepped in and gave the money and brought in Frank Lloyd Wright, an apprentice, to carry on the legacy of Frank Lloyd Wright. Now also a few years ago, we did, we closed off the street, created the plaza, and once again, the legacy of Frank Lloyd Wright is continued with the design of the park based on the design of three of his students from Taliesin School of Architecture. I have so many questions. <clears throat> I have so many questions for you. And you are so knowledgeable. And the tour that you just provided was nothing short of, of remarkable. This building is just so groundbreaking at the time between the use of aluminum, the inclusion of art, the manner in which there are so many different materials used from the copper, which was, which was used both for its material value as well as its artistic value because of how it would change in color. And then there's the fact that there no, no single side of this structure is the same. This is, a, this is truly a, a one-off, and it is, it is unique from, from top to bottom, starting with the geometric shapes, into the stars, into the everything. So much went into the process. As an, as an architect, as someone who has given tour after tour of this particular building, what strikes you most unique about it, knowing that everything is so unique? Do you know, what really strikes me is the innovation for the time period. Because as we sit here in the apartment, even the construction of it is unique. All the floors are concrete, which are cantilevered from the four major support walls of the elevators. But then that proved to be a problem. How do you light? How do you air condition? Where do the vents go? So as a result, if you look around, you're going to see that he dropped a plenum beneath the concrete ceiling. That is where all of the electrical wires is. And the building was one of the first ones to use the hidden vent, where it's the spineless vent that runs under. So every part of the building was innovative. But one of the things that I've learned as I've been here more is Innovations don't always work, okay? We have a heating and air conditioning system that has never really worked because I read in an old interview that in 1957, in the winter, space heaters were handed out to all the secretaries because it was never warm enough. And Mr. Wright used different kinds of materials and I don't know if there's scientists out there that know that aluminum and copper are not friends to each other. And all of our copper louvers are attached with aluminum. But I think what I find the most innovative about building are the spaces. But the most fascinating thing here is the light. I'm here all seasons, day, night, anytime. So I've seen it through thunderstorms, which are dramatic with lighting outside, through the bright sunlight, through winter where the whole light changes. And every day that I come here, I find something new to see. A little detail might pop out at me. A little floor cut may pop out at me. And so much of it depends on light. So I think we really have to say, that one of the greatest things about the building is the use of light. And in many of his buildings, light is just so important. But here, I think we really become aware of that. And Mr. Wright, always one of the indoor-outdoor connection. And as I'm sitting here on the 17th floor, you look out and you feel that you're actually a part of the outside, no matter where you are. And the way the building is designed with the angles, it's very hard not to look out a window. 
or it's a reflection of a window or something. So it's really the light that I think has really captured the most in here. What's fascinating too, and, and I agree with you, but what's so fascinating too is you took us through Mr. Price's office. Yes. And you talk about the light and you talk about the windows. The one area in this entire building where that is completely flawed and faulty is where his secretary would sit to, to be able to look out the window. That, there's a wood panel right in front of her face. Well, you have to remember, her job was to type. Her job was not to look out the window. And we had to get the most efficiency out of her, so give her nothing to look at. And she was really kind of obligated to look at her typing all the time. Now, I think that was, you know, people say, oh, maybe, maybe that was just a mistake. I don't believe it was. I really think that he wanted to make sure that she was concentrating. And in a typical office, the, the areas were divided. And most often the secretaries got the areas with no windows out of the office. And I think back at that time period, today we're executive assistants. But at that time, secretaries were treated much differently. And her job was to type and to wait on Mr. Price. And that was why I think her area number one is small. And number two doesn't have the windows, so she keeps concentrating on her work. And I do find that very odd, but times have changed. You know, talking about workers in the building, in Mr. Price's office, can you imagine telling people today that you have to climb a ladder to water the plants and carry buckets of water up? Everyone would say, not my job, where in the 1950s people were just like, okay, that's what I have to do. So the times have dramatically changed since this building was built. The whole country has changed since then. But the whole area of working has also changed. It, it has, and it reminds me back to the original purpose of this building. And you had mentioned this, and I'm hoping you'll, you'll tell the story again of what the original purpose of this particular building was. It, there was th th it was broken down into percentage for this, percentage for this, percentage for this, residential, hospitality, right. you know, office space. There was a purpose to this structure, and everything had its place, and there was a reason for everything. There was. It was actually almost a hierarchy of floors. Now... Mr. Wright considered this his only skyscraper ever built. And his definition of a skyscraper was it must be a multi-use building. And one of the things that is fascinating here is the building is so defined by the multi-use. They were offices. There were eight apartments. There were dining terraces. But what makes it unique is when you look at the outside of the building, each floor was clearly divided into quadrants. Three of the quadrants were commercial office space, and that was denoted by horizontal louvers. There was a two-story residential space on each floor, which was denoted by vertical louvers. So Mr. Wright had this plan from the very beginning that you would very clearly see the definition in between and the retail space was kept to the first two floors of the building. So you can almost divide two floors retail, commercial residential, topped by the 17th and 18th floor with the Price Family Corporate Apartment, topped by Mr. Price's office on the top floor. So there was a hierarchy as you went up. And the H.C. Price Company occupied the 11th through the 19th floor. So they were actually the top of the building. And it's interesting to me, too, that when most people might consider a Frank Lloyd Wright home, big, expansive, open, this, is, this almost reminds me of a Usonian idea stacked. 
It actually is very much relates to the Usonian idea where function. And do you know what I find so interesting about Usonian houses and Mr. Wright's design is now that we have gone through the McMansion period, and I have to say the McMansion period has been very good for my career as an architect and interior designer, we are now going back to smaller, tighter spaces with everything well-designed, built-in furniture, as you see here, built-ins for storage. But you know, one of the things that's very interesting, and most of Mr. Wright's home, and including this apartment, there is room for storage. But back in the 1950s, we didn't have the need for storage we need today. This apartment is designed very much almost like a ship. Very compact kitchen, very compact bathrooms. But for the time period, the kitchen was very luxurious. It had all the appliances. And, you know, as we go on, we're reflecting back more and more on Mr. Wright's concept of the Usonian house, of smaller spaces, the tiny house movement that has become so popular now. And I think we can relate a lot of that to Mr. Wright's innovations that began back many, many years ago. He had originally tried to do pre-built pre homes. But one of his important concepts was to try and make great homes available to everyone with the Usonian house. But unfortunately, Mr. Wright wasn't great on budgets. So all the Usonian houses ended up by costing as much as a regular house, if not more. But the concept was there, and that concept was later developed, so it did prove to have homes for others. You're listening to my conversation with Price Connors from the Price Tower in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. We'll be right back. We are living at a time of incredible growth, both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design, and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful, incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors, to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community, so you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living, their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. The Institute of Classical Architecture and Art Southern California chapter is a forum for professionals in the industry and enthusiasts to come together, share their love, and show their commitment to the timeless principles of beauty, proportion, and observation that are embodied in classicism. Their members include renowned architects, designers, landscape architects, builders, students, artists, and creatives from every walk of life. It's a wonderful organization designed to celebrate the unique regional identity of Southern California and help develop the careers of the like-minded. If you're interested in joining or would like to learn more about sponsorship and support for the ICAA Southern California chapter, please email me, convobydesign at outlook.com. So it's, a, it's an interesting idea. And also what it makes me think about is the idea of the Usonian house um, if you look, and I get the idea, the idea was there. And, and if you look back at the Wallace Neff bubble house, someone, someone who too specialized in big, grand, completely different style. And then the bubble house where, you know, the plan was for all of these returning GIs from World War II to have a place to live. And he, I, I believe he wound up dying in the very last one, which, you know, to me always just 
seemed not not to minimize it, but it was the idea of basically taking a swimming pool and turning it upside down, right. you know, and having that idea and then compartmentalizing it into spaces. The idea, the the philosophy behind that is very present in in the Price Tower. Absolutely. We also talked about you and I had a had a brief conversation. The the elevators are extremely small, which goes to the idea, right? That that and you you explained it beautifully. I don't want to jump on your explanation, but that elevators, walkways, stairways don't require, don't get a lot of space. Not at all. Mr. Wright really felt that some areas just did not need space. And one of them was elevators. That was merely a way to go up and down. Staircases should not dominate a building. And the staircase here is a little bit difficult to go up and down, shall I say. Kitchens were small, but very efficient. Bathrooms were small, but efficient. And I think what is very strange today to people is how small he kept bedrooms. Bedrooms were meant for sleeping and sleeping only. And Mr. Wright designed each one basically to just hold a bed, a chest of drawers, a night table, and that was all you needed. Now, at the time the Price Tower was built, of course, space needs were much less than they are now. The average American home, when, the, when this building was built, was about 1,000 square feet. The average American home today is 2,400 square feet. So our idea of space has changed dramatically. Now, one of the things that is one of my favorite things in a right building, and particularly this building, is his repetition of detail. The details follow through so well. In this building, we have fire stairs, which form a rather dramatic element on the outside. And Mr. Price, Mr. Wright repeated those in Mr. Price's building. The outline, the profile of the fire stairs is repeated in the carport supports outside and also in the back of the chairs that he designed for inside. So Mr. Wright very much thought about every detail in the building. One of the details I particularly like is a design called the bean sprout that Mr. Wright designed to symbolize new beginnings. And this building was a new beginning. It was his first skyscraper. And the bean sprout is a simple little design. But Mr. Wright repeated it into the railings on the staircases. Now, most of these details are not really visible to you when you first come in. You have to really study the building. And one of the most interesting things is, as you study the building, you learn more and more about Mr. Wright's attention to detail. Just that little detail of repeating the bean sprout as a railing is a fantastic way of repeating a, a repetition of something in the building in a new way. And what I love about that too is, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright had, had received a reputation for, for being prickly, very prickly. You know, if you've ever seen the Mike Wallace interview. Of course. It's just, that was his personality, that was his character. At the same time, though, you have someone like a Bruce Goff who, who learned from Mr. Wright. And when you look at the Boston Avenue Methodist Church, you talk about the carried repetition of style and features. You can see that all the way down from the, from the, the ornamental detail to the structure into the lighting in the parking lot. Right, and it, you it, you can see that it was taught to him through the process done on projects like you know like this and and others. It's just it's fascinating to me. A, a couple of other things: the artwork in the in the building's extraordinary, and I was wondering if you would touch on that. But I also wanted to ask you about another thing. So one of the things I learned when I moved from Southern California to Tulsa, Oklahoma to work on the design house project is wood. You can go from summer, 90 degrees, 70, 80% humidity, to winter, five degrees, 10% humidity. Right. That's not good for some materials. 
No, and you know, I think a lot of that is represented in the artwork that was chosen to put in here. Mr. Price selected the mural in his office, which is all glass, which is an innate material. And it's composed of glass and mirrors, etc. But none of that moves with the humidity, with changes of weather, etc. So I believe that was actually thought through from day one to choose artwork that would last. Copper is a lasting material that was used as decorative details throughout. And aluminum is also another material that is quite long lasting. So I think a lot of these things were thought about. Now, one of the things that I find very interesting is that even the quotation in the downstairs lobby, which is on the wall, was painted on the wall. Where at that time, most of the time, things were painted on canvases that were then applied. And this time it was painted directly on the wall, which meant that it wasn't affected by humidity. It wasn't affected by changes in the weather. And particularly a lobby area is exposed to every time the door opens, a blast of cold air comes in. But I really feel that all that was actually thought about as it was going. Now, when we talked about the influence of many people, I graduated from college in Philadelphia, Drexel University, and my thesis for architectural history. Now, remember, this was a few years ago before I ever heard of Bartlesville. My thesis was on the influence of Frank Furness on the work of Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, those of you not from Philadelphia have no idea who Frank Furness is. Frank Furness was a very well-known Victorian architect, very much overdone. But Louis Sullivan was his apprentice. Mr. Wright became the apprentice to Louis Sullivan. And my thesis was, tr was tracing back some of the decorative detail from Frank Furness to Mr. Sullivan and how it later ended up being adapted in a much simplified manner by Mr. Wright. So this evolution of decorative detail has been going on for a very long time. And even though Mr. Wright probably wouldn't like to admit it, he did learn from other people. He wouldn't like to admit that, would he? He wouldn't. No, <laughs> no but, but back, back to the, the material question again, because to your point, you know, the, the way that the copper has aged is just extraordinary. And it's funny because, you know, we're inside and I'm looking at, at one of the, the heated, it's not a fireplace, it looks like a fireplace, but it's a heater, right? Right, a space heater. A space yeah. heater. And um, the, the copper on it hasn't, hasn't, the patina isn't there like it is on the outside for, for obvious reasons, I think. No, I can tell you why that is. Yeah. The outside of the building is the tree that escaped the crowded forest. Have you ever seen a tree with copper, with shiny copper leaves or dull copper leaves? The outside of the building was treated chemically to be green from day one. So it would, you would think of a tree. Okay. D sorry, does this go back to um, Mr. Wright's visit? He had always wanted the copper to be that color. So, but they, they chemically, did, did they chemically treat it because of a, of a timeline, or did they, did they chemically treat it because they just didn't want to wait? Well, do you know what? You think about Mr. Wright and his very particular way of doing things. And he wanted it done now. Well, he wanted it done then, but copper on the north side of a building doesn't turn the same color as copper on the south side of a building, or on the east or the west. It doesn't turn evenly. You know what's interesting to me about that is, as a perfectionist, that I, I, I totally get that, but also as someone who puts so much time and energy into bringing nature into the process of the design, isn't that almost like a, like a, like a wabi-sabi-esque idea where, you know what, it's going to be a different color on the north than the south, the east than the west, because nature's different. Is that not acceptable? Or the, the idea that it be 
that color uniformly was more important at the time. Well, Mr. Wright actually had a color scheme for, him to, for the whole building. It was turquoise, which is what he called the copper. It was the browns of the copper on, you know, untreated, the wood tones. And then it was the red of the floors accented by silver, which was the aluminum. So this whole color scheme was worked out for both the interior and the exterior. And it was necessary to get the copper that color to make it fit in with everything else. And by the way, you know, I'm going to check the angle to see. You can almost, I'll have a picture of it on Instagram. You can see the color palette represented in the work behind you. Right. On the wall, um, which I think is is amazing, too, how it, it's artfully done, how it's worked into the spacing of the shelves. It so, is. This was not originally here. Oh, it was not. In 19, it was put in in 1956 when the building opened. But when the building was first done in 1955, when this apartment was first completed, there was actually an Asian gold leaf screen there. What was the what was the influence for that? Well, Mr. Wright always had a heavy Japanese influence in everything that he did, and you know it's been said that he made more money buying and selling Japanese prints than he ever did architecture. So at the time that the building was done, now remember this was only for about one year that it was decorated like that. We have the Asian screen on the wall here. And the windows, rather than the fabric that you see here, was a translucent silk. Now, those of you who may know Oklahoma know that we have a sun that is very intense. Within a few months, the silk was hanging in shreds. <laughs> so it was changed to this much bolder color scheme in 1956. Now, I will tell you a funny story about this mural. Mrs. Price was not a great lover of everything that Mr. Wright did. And she didn't like the colors in this mural. So she painted over them in the colors that she liked. And then this was a very costly, long restoration project to bring it back to pre-Mrs. Price. And as I say, this was a wonderful gift. And I think that whole thing of the blue moon adds a whimsy to this whole wall that is normally lacking. Tell me the influence and impact of the furniture that Frank Lloyd Wright designed for Mr. Price. It's, it's space age in the chairs. There are three different styles in his office. A, a, a great deal went into... The furniture and, Absolutely. And, and the impact of the furniture on the building and the building on the furniture. Now, oddly enough, the, the two chairs that we're sitting in now was Mr. Wright's only venture into commercially available furniture. This furniture was available for one year from Hendredon and Company called the Taliesin Line. And it's hard to believe today that... It was discontinued after one year. Nobody wanted it. It wasn't, it was too sophisticated and high style. Now, the one thing that's interesting about these chairs are, it, this is probably the only comfortable furniture Mr. Wright ever designed. Because these chairs, I could sit here all day. And these are very comfortable They are chair. incredibly comfortable. They are. Yeah. Which Mr. Wright is not known for. Now, the other chairs, which were designed by Mr. Wright, the, I called them the beam-me-up Scotty chairs, made out of aluminum, a very Star Trek-looking, repeating the um, carport supports and the fire stairs, a repetition of detail. And they are comfortable for their time period. I'm not going to say they're extremely comfortable. They're made out of cast aluminum. And they were actually locally made by the Blue Sim Foundry in Dewey, Oklahoma. 
and they were upholstered by Bell's Car Upholstery here in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. No kidding. So do you know, most of the, everything that Mr. Wright did, he tried to use for a lot local craftspeople. So let's say the copper on the outside of the building, the louvers, was done by Timmins Sheet Metal Company. And Bartlesville being a small town, whenever we need a repair, we can still call the original company who made the louvers. So Timmins, they're still in business? Yes, they are. No kidding. Yeah, it's, you know, that's a very nice part about Bartlesville. A lot of company lasted a long time. All the furniture that was built in was made locally, according to his designs. The cushions were all made locally. So he did use a lot of local people to do everything. And the man who made these chairs is still alive in Dewey. I spoke to him a few, oh, a month or so ago. And it's fascinating how these chairs are very difficult to make. You know, you look at them and I shouldn't say this, but many of Mr. Wright's original drawings for the chairs, when you sat in them, broke. So they were redesigned many times. And Mr. Price did complain about that. Now, do you know, one of the things, I am an architect, and one of the things that I found out has been a problem forever is getting your client to pay the bills. Now, Mr. Price had originally agreed with a signed contract to pay $1.2 billion for the building. Well, the contract, well, it went to 2.4. And Mr. Wright sent a bill for the full amount of his architectural commission on the full budget. And Mr. Wright wrote, Mr. Price wrote back to Mr. Wright saying, I'm only going to pay you on the agreed upon budget for the Price Tower, for the home for my son in Bartlesville, and our home in Arizona. I'm not paying you on the full budget. Now, I've never heard the final result of this. I've I talked to both of his sons when they were still around. They didn't know anything about this, but we found these letters in the collection of the Getty. I don't have the answer to them. The sons knew nothing about this fight going on. But Mr. Wright did write back at one point, I never thought I was such a bad judge of character. I expected to be paid. And Mr. Wright did expect payment. And then he finally wrote a letter saying, if you don't want to pay me my bill, give me $50,000 as a donation to the foundation that I want to begin. I never, know, never knew whether that went on or not, but they continued to be friends. So I assume somewhere along the line, the financial issues were worked out. A financial fight. That's, that's a great story. I, there's a lot of, and, and I think that's what's so interesting that most people don't realize is that it's not, it's not about a building. It's not about a structure. It's not about the materials. It's not about, it's not about where it is. It, it's, architecture is a language. It De is. Design is a story. It's a narrative. And if you look at the rare combination of the story and the narrative and the language of this particular building, it's just, it's so rich. It's so rich and, and specific, you know, it's not just the, the richness of the architectural being, but it's the stories. It's the stories of the chairs and, and Dewey and, you know, the, the, the material, you know, for the, for the chairs. Uh, I believe you mentioned that it was part of from the, Schu the Schumacher, from the Schumacher collection for Frank Lloyd Wright and, and the paint collection, you know, that, that has Frank Lloyd Wright read, um, it's just, it, it's so deep and rich in, in history, and, and that's, that's what I hope carries through. What is, what is the future for this building? Do you know what we, um, 
we have had great financial difficulty over the past years due to changes in Bartlesville. And we recently sold the building to a company called Copper Tree, which is a company based here in Bartlesville. And they have promised to put over $10 million into the renovation of the building and the repair. So all I can say is I have tremendous great hopes for the building to survive for another 67 years in the way it is now and hopefully way beyond that and always be a tribute to Mr. Wright and to Mr. Price. I'm going to go off the topic for just a little bit, if I may. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. Is I have to explain to you a little bit about H.C. Price. He was born in Washington, D.C. He came here. He was really a self-made man without a great deal of money. He began his business on $2,500. But one of the things that H.C. Price was always interested in was giving back to the community. One of the reasons why this building was built, he saw this as a gift and a legacy to Bartlesville. And this was one of the reasons why he built it. He always meant it to be a gift to Bartlesville. Now, if you go around town, we have a park called Sooner Park with a wonderful play tower by Bruce Goff. That park is on land donated by the Price Foundation. Mrs. Price donated the money to build the play tower. <clears throat> now, you know, I'm always learning something new. And on Saturday night, I was part of a group that was honored at the Legacy Foundation. And they brought up the Boys and Girls Club. So unknown to me, Mr. Price, after visiting Scottsdale, Arizona, saw a Boars Club, remember it wasn't Boars and Girls Club then, the Boars Club, in operation, and decided that Bartlesville needed one. So the H.C. Price Foundation bought the first building that the um, Boars Club was in. They, and they were in the old Nazarene church for two years. And then... Mr. Price bought the land where the current Boys and Girls Club stands, donated it to them, and donated $75,000 toward the building of it, and served on the board for many years. And he was also very involved with many other things. But I really feel that truly one of the important parts of this building was H.C. Price giving back to the community. And that's really important. And, and, you know, this is probably a great place to sort of wrap this up is the richness of the campus. And that 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 came from the richness, not funding wise, but but a giving back of the community. Absolutely. Bartlesville, if you if you walk around this, if you look at um, the, the campus that this building stands on, there's an open park. There's a stage. There's a community center with a with a gorgeous. It's a gorgeous facility, and that's not it. There's. Tell me again about the the opera and the 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 arts that are here in Bartlesville. I think that it's a it's a fitting place for a building like this because it's. If you talk to people in New York City or Los Angeles, it, you know you say is is Bartlesville, Oklahoma, an arts community is it a community of giving back is it is it what it actually is you'd get questions people wouldn't know that so i think it's to have it here brings the kind of attention that maybe mr price wanted well do you know i think what what really has to happen is people have to realize how much the com community gives because it's hard to believe in a town of about 36,000 people, we have 400 nonprofits. Isn't that an unbelievable number? Yeah, it is. And, you know, we're giving to all of them. And we have one of the country's longest running music festivals. In two weeks, we begin the 39th season a symphony orchestra, a civic ballet, a choral society. 
Children's Music Theater, which is relatively new, but it has produced a number of people from Bartlesville who have gone on to be on Broadway. One of them was the star of Wicked. One of them was also a star of the Carol King musical. So we are always looking to the future of really continuing the education. And one of the things that I hope when I give the tours of Tower, if I can motivate one child to be an architect, to be a designer, to get involved in the arts, because you know, let's face it, in Oklahoma, children don't really know there's a whole future in design, in architecture and all. So my one hope is that I can inspire in one child the seed of desire to be an architect or a designer and maybe continue on to be the lifelong dream of Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> Design Hardware's newly remodeled showroom is where you will find a gallery-style space with a thoughtful display of products, purposefully positioned to allow unbridled exploration and discovery. High-end faucets, luxury tile, natural stone, wood floors, and bespoke hardware selections are presented in a holistic manner, strategically arranged to stimulate creativity and transition your vision from the conceptual stage to a fully realized space. Conveniently located, free parking available, stop by to find your inspiration, Collect samples, get expert advice, and tackle everything on your shopping list all in one place. Visit them online at designhardware.com or in the real world, 6053 West 3rd Street in Los Angeles. You hear conversations about transformative design all the time on Convo by Design. We talk about it all the time. But what does that really mean? Design improves the lives of those who inhabit the space. But it also feeds the creativity and the soul of the creative are you looking for a way to give back? The Oasis Alliance is a 501c3 collective of creatives based in and around the Washington, D.C. area with a mission to provide healing spaces to those who are rebuilding, rehabilitating, and recovering. Have you wondered how to apply your design skills to uplift your community? It all starts with a desire and a willingness to share your gifts. Danielle Woodhouse Johnson of the Oasis Alliance and her team are looking for guest designers, in-kind sponsors, and funding to make better the spaces and therefore the lives of everyday people who find themselves coming out of traumatic situations. Check out theoasisalliance.org for more information. Thanks for helping. What an absolutely amazing experience. Thank you everyone at the Price Tower for making the visit possible. Thank you to Price uh, for speaking with me and the amazing tour. My hope here was to share this extraordinary piece of American architecture with you. I know that many, if not most, in the U.S. have no plans to visit Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and I imagine it even more challenging for our international listeners. I do encourage you to check out the videos because this is an amazing place. The images and the extra content on Instagram at Convo by Design with an X. Thank you for listening. Until next week, be well and take today first. 